So, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. Um, this is where we have inspiring conversations with the change leaders that are at the helm of the African transformation. And today we are doing something different. You know, this season is all about speaking to youth that are transforming the continent in various artistic ways. So we've spoken to a writer and today we have a writer whose work is at the intercession of a lot of beautiful social conversations that we ought to have, but as young people, we most often um, don't have. But also, he is more than that. He's a scientist who's having a PhD, who's pursuing a PhD in neuroscience, but already is a pharmacist, has gone to school for six years to pursue a doctor of pharmacy. So we have Dr. Kusi Obuadim Sylvester here, um, popularly called Sly Kid, popularly called Kokusi. And it's a pleasure to have Sly, who is also my classmate in high school, by the way. So we are going to have the conversation as usual with Daniel Merki and myself. Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, Sylvester. Thank you. Uh, you would know that I don't have an English name. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't know the backstory because we went to school together. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I know. I know. Um, it's your brother's name. Yes. But we still call you Sly and uh, we, we, we... It's like, it has become your name. Sort of. Right. <laughs> right, I'll take it. <laughs> Yo, so Sly Kid, um, I know. But let's start off with, you know, you a pharmacist, right? What eventually led you to pursue pharmacy? Like, the, the Ghanaian goal, I guess... I guess what we are not told is that there's almost only three categories of Ghanaian aspiration professionally. It has to be in the field of medicine. And when we say medicine, I think what we want to say is doctor, like the one in the white coat trying to um, perform surgeries on people. And then we have the engineers and then we have the lawyers. Like that's the only three categorization, I guess. At what point did you find out that you wanted to pursue that? Oh, was it a second choice or a third choice? Right. Yeah, that's that's a story I, I love to tell. So I never had aspirations to be anything growing up. Yeah, I say it without shame. I didn't know what I wanted to be growing up. Uh, I did science because... And I come from a very liberal home. They let you do whatever. All you need to do is give us a reason why. What's the why? So I wanted to do art. And my dad is like, why do you want to do art? I said, uh, well... I think I, I, I'm a good speaker and I could make a good lawyer. That was the first time he heard me say that. And he was like, well, right now, law is not a first degree program. So you'd have to do something before you can do law. At the time, it wasn't. And I said, okay, um, then what else can I do? He's like, well, how about science? I was like, okay, yeah, science. And he says that there are a myriad of opportunities. So it buys you time, three years to decide what you want to be. So I did science. When I started the science after one year, law became a first degree. I'm like, do I change my program? But I didn't. Did science. Uh, finished school. Still didn't know what I wanted to do. And you're right. That Ghanaian pressure got to me. Hey, you're smart. You can be a doctor. Do you know? You will make perfect grades. So, yeah. So, I picked medicine for tech. And then I picked um, law 
for Legon. I wanted to do law. Legon didn't give me law because I made a B2 on English, which I don't understand as of today. Um, Tech didn't give me a medicine for whatever reason. In fact, Tech didn't give me any program at all. Uh, wow. Medicine, yeah, for six A's. Medicine, uh, pharmacy, biological science, something else. I don't remember. Nothing. They said I didn't choose my courses. Well, I I don't know. I should have chosen my courses. But they're right about the pharmacy because at the time, pharmacy had been changed to doctor of pharmacy. It wasn't bachelor anymore. So it became more competitive, right? There was traffic. That's someone's first choice. You can't choose it as your second choice. So yeah, I didn't get any course. And I was there and I was praying to God that a miracle will come my way. And pharmacy put me on fee-paying list. And I spoke to my dad about it. I know the man doesn't have money. Dude is like... uh. If we have to remove our shoes to sell to put you in school, we'll do that. And that's how I got into pharmacy school. Oh, wow. So you were a fee-paying student? Yeah, 6000 every year. Shop. I never knew. I never knew. Because, like, the assumption is that... I mean, I know you. You know me. The assumption is that's like smart. So, yeah, Charlie. And he had good grades in his wasi. You are not like me. I didn't have good grades in my wasi, Right. Which is also surprising because, like, for example, I didn't get an A in English, which I can't understand because in my high school career, <laughs> I always had an A. I, I can tell you why. It's based on conjecture, but uh, you went to school in Kumasi, <laughs> so there's already that prejudice when they pick your your paper. Yeah. But but that's a funny thing. Um, this theme of I don't know what I want to do. How comfortable have you been with it or the otherwise? Like, how has it made you feel like you are useless, you are aimless, other people have their life figured out and you don't have your life figured out? It's hard. Reason why it's hard is it's like you're qualified for everything, right? And then there are lots of people that are behind you that want to see you successful. Your teachers, your friends, Luckily, I didn't have that for my parents. They don't give me pressure. And my siblings don't give me pressure either. But at the time, my brother was, my brother is an engineer and he had a, like, a scholarship to leave Ghana, pursue a master's. Uh, my sister was a pharmacist and she's killing it. And then there's me. Who doesn't know what I want to do with my life? But you're probably the smartest. I won't say that. So it's a funny argument in my house every time. So everyone thinks the other one is smarter but yeah like we all have our opinions about who is who is the smartest in the house and we measure it differently by different metrics uh so yeah we don't have the conversation anymore but they won't give me any pressure but on my own intrinsically there's that pressure you cannot disappoint and my siblings and i went to the same schools like saint Teresa school opokuwari school like my brother and i and you know how things were for me in first year. You went to school like Sly New York school. Everyone has expectations of you the first day in school and the first two hours you spend in school. So it was a little hard for me. But what I used to take consolation in is that if I work hard in every regard, in every aspect, like academically, if I can make good grades, whatever I decide later on that I want to do, I'll qualify, right? So even though I don't know where I'm going, I'm getting just the right resources. Um, I want to do music. I want to do photography. I want to do this. I want to do that because I don't know where my life will end up. So let me just get all these resources and organize it together. And that was just consoling for me. I like the idea of, you know what? I don't know where I am at. I don't know where I'm going necessarily, but 
if I do well enough in whatever I'm doing now, I'll be prepared for the next step, right? Because I think that most people, when they evaluate the progression of their life, they don't put a lot of excellence in one path, right? So I guess what you are saying is that, it, so insofar as you are excellent in the path that you are trying to pursue, no matter how vague or blurry the destination is, you will eventually be able to say, even though I don't know where I'm going, I am here now and I am excellent. So would you give me an opportunity to try something and I can at least prove that I'll put in my all and I'll be excellent. Right, right, right yeah. on. Right on. I, th- I think that's a very beautiful perspective. Like, you know, young people, I think the, the, the narrative that we kind of put out there is that when you are unsure about something, then it probably means that you're not going to do well. But you being unsure doesn't mean that you can't put in your energy and effort to make sure that you are giving it your best. And I like that perspective. But tell me, in this journey of pharmacy, right, again, you are not so sure. How did you find your grounds? As in, how did you get comfortable in that space when you started the journey? And maybe even how did you get comfortable in high school? Because I'm one of those people, too, that has, like, the multiplicity of paths. I mean, there were several times that an English teacher told me that I probably should go to the ass class and go and pursue fam- um, law. I mean, just like two weeks or a week ago, I was having a conversation with someone who also is like me and says, like, you are going to do well in this law thing, Charlie. You are going to do law. You probably should consider it. And I don't know, right? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just wake up Sunday and like, probably I should do law, you know. Yeah. So how do you find consolation in the uncertainty? So pharmacy school... That is one of the best things, apart from Opokuwari school. Pharmacy school is one of the best things that happened to me. Pharmacy school is, is a bittersweet thing. It's very challenging. It's crazy. It's stressful. On the other hand, it is fun. Pharmacy school is, I don't know if you follow them on, uh, on Twitter and on, and Snapchat, but if you don't, you should look at it. There's this, when you come to school, there's this image. Your first week in school, when you're walking around and they ask you, Charlie, what course you they do? You're like, oh, doctor of pharmacy. You say it with a lot of pride, right? I gave you two weeks. When you start going for labs and they ask you what course you're pursuing, you're like, oh, Charlie, boy, may I pharmacy you? All of a sudden, you become sad because everybody empathizes with you. Like, oh, Charlie, like that should be very hard. They know what you go through. Back to back, you go for labs every day. You go to class from like 8 to 12.30. You switch to lab from 12.30 to when your experiments ends, which can be 6 p.m. You have to do quizzes every day, um, compulsory in the lab. You do uh, sports quizzes in class, like sometimes surprise quizzes. You don't know anything about it. And you have to cut grade, especially if you're a regular student, because if you don't cut grade, then you lose your uh, the your funding and then you have to become a fee-paying student. Um, if you're trailing, if you're failing like four papers and you're carrying it on to the next day, you have to repeat class. All of that, it was, it was, it was crazy. But... They have systems that make it fun. Like there's the, the farm media, like, like, let's go and take pictures. There's organizing committee. I was an organizing committee in first year. All the, the drink ups, the parties, the, the dinners. Yeah. People from all pro- engineering people, they come on our drink ups. And it was, it was that those kind of things made school, um, fun for me. Also, when you're in pharmacy school, when you enter pharmacy school, usually you don't really know unless somebody told you before. But when you get in there and they show you how diverse your life can be, you appreciate it more. If and this is not to, I love the profession medicine uh and uh 
this is not to invalidate their profession. I feel like that one is a calling, Charlie. I'm fair, I am fair. But you can do practice in the hospital, you can do research, and a lot of people are being creative about medical practice now. But pharmacy intrinsically gives you that, and you don't even have to work so hard for it. You can easily choose not to work in the hospital. You can easily choose not to work in a community pharmacy. You can be a rep, medical rep. You can be into research. You can be into public health. A lot of things. And that's what I loved most about pharmacy. So you are, I guess, on the path to research now? Yeah. When I went into school, I had three options. It's either I will go into the military um because we had some family friend i didn't even consider my height at the time or <laughs> or i will um i will end up teaching like going into academia and teaching because i do that effortlessly or i go back after school and do law those were the three options i had when i went into pharmacy school as time went on i i appreciated the teaching bits of things because i'd have to help my classmates out and things I'm like oh i actually know how to do this thing like use analogies and things to make people understand and cut grade uh i wasn't so much into the research bit right but the teaching aspect i loved it then i clipped the military idea then i was left with law and teaching and i'm still juggling that anyway i can still decide to do law but they told me that if you want to teach if you want to lecture in the university you need that research part. You have to put out papers. I'm like, okay, then I have to conscientize myself. So I started talking to lecturers and things. And pharmacy school lecturers are the best. They'll give you all the information you need. Um, my supervisor, uh, Dr. Kwaji, my academic tutor, my project supervisor, uh, Dr. Um, Arnold uh, Foucault, and then Dr. Preslamante. Amazing people. They kind of gave me perspective on research and they won me um they won me over like easily it wasn't it wasn't even difficult for them to win me over especially dr mante she introduced me to neuro research met me didn't know me like like just a regular student i spoke to her once she noticed i was interested in research and she's like oh we can get you a um an internship program in university of michigan i'm like for real but like my passport coming you see that and you you want to fly me to michigan to do what and she followed through. She sent mails until she got me in there, went to do research with her, worked on some zebra fish. And I loved the research. I'm like, oh, I'll do this thing after school. And that's just how I go here. Cool. So what is the bigger picture? You know, when I think about research in Africa, um, you know, let's like look at some of the statistics. Almost 1% or less of global research comes from Africa. What is the problem? Is it a funding problem? And for you, what is the bigger picture? Like, what do you intend to achieve in the research that you are doing? And how does that impact your work eventually? Right. So um, I am doing um, addiction research. So I'm doing all the weird stuff, finding out why are people addicted to cocaine and why is it that people try to stop smoking and they can't? Why are the drugs not working? That's where my research is um, is is focused on, and it's inspired by things that I saw growing up. Like, I don't think I've ever been in the right kind of company. Like, in quote, right, the people that society brands, you know, uh, riff raffs because they do drugs. That's that's always the company that I like. I find myself in, and um, 
for some of them they're killing it they're doing very well and all of that but also i know some people that have had their futures taken away from them um because they were victims of um, substance abuse and i want to contribute to helping to solve uh that problem the big picture for me is honestly I'm, i'm going to be very honest about this blatantly honest the research that we are doing yes it provides answers it provides solutions but my friend who is in KNUST or who is an adenta that has been smoking and wants to stop doesn't care what research i'm doing sometimes half of those products that we use for addiction we don't even have access to them in ghana and rehab in ghana is super expensive and my friend will not be able to have access to it but then there are also very non-conventional ways there's 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 a, a pharmacological part of it like drugs and then there's a behavioral part of it and that is where the art comes in it for me so that's my big picture my big goal is to be able to use art and then use the science part of it put it together and try and solve that problem going forward okay uh, yeah hi i'll call you i'll call you kofi yes that's a okay. that's okay. yes okay i mean I was listening quite fascinated to the first part just because the school system aspects is very different to, very different from my perspective especially I never thought about anything in terms of where will it lead me I just did what I wanted to do and then for us it's a little bit different I for, like I schooled in the Swiss school system first so it's always interesting to hear that but just now with the last part that you mentioned um the big picture I was kind of wondering what is what's the difference between the aspects of prevention versus now you versus then the actual i don't know if you should call it treatment curative where that right. comes curative okay yeah so um the prevention i don't even know which one is easier to do preventing or curing but um if you look at preventive we're looking at ways to minimize people initiating uh substance abuse right don't even start in the first place what can i do so that somebody doesn't even start in the first place and prevention is more like i mean the person is not using anything so that one is just the artsy things of like doing art that talks about substance abuse and what has happened to person a and person b because they abuse drug right which has been overstated like they've been hammering on those preventive measures since we were in primary school so preventive we're looking at very non-conventional ways, like new ways to prevent people from even like using it before the thing arrests them, right? But curative, we're dealing with people that have been through it, have had uh, very uh, debilitating experiences with it and want to stop. So for them, it goes beyond the artsy things. That's when it becomes more science. And then we begin to use drugs. We have to take them through therapy, things like that. I guess that's the, the main difference between them. Okay, but in your big picture, I'm asking because you mentioned your, like, like, like the example, let's say your friend in Adenta. So is the big picture really to prevent or to research? Kill. Yeah, where is, where do we, is there an importance or it has to go hand in hand? How does that work? Yeah, so the artsy things, that's what I'm telling you that uh, I'm doing two things. I'm doing science and I'm doing art. The art hits on the preventive heavier, right? And then the science hits on the curative. So 
much as I want to talk about it, I don't want to blindly talk about it. If I have to tell somebody to prevent it, I can just get up and then say, but to cure it, I need to have information. I need to be by my test tubes. I need to be by my rats, seeing what is going on in them. And then I kind of understand. And then I have a fair idea. What can I block to prevent this? That kind of thing is like my big picture. Yeah, like the analogy that comes to mind is like, maybe it's kind of cliche, but for you to prevent the occurrence of something is much more difficult because you don't even know the kind of actions, the kind of environments that people come from. So you basically have to touch the souls of the people, right? Like you have to do something to them that kind of go inward to their inner being and make them change their behavioral patterns, right? I mean, I studied psychology in undergrad, so I understand all of the things and the theories that exist, right? But eventually, there are social cultural like factors that lead to these things, right? And so if you can reach people at that level, then they may not have to get entangled in the societal vices that lead them to becoming addicted, etc. But that's a good segue into your acts. At what point did you start showing inclinations of art um, participation or art involvement? Yeah, I've been I've been killing it since high school. So I um, um, I listened to some artists when I was growing up. Uh, definitely Sakodie. There was this guy. He's back. I don't know if you guys remember him, Papa Vesa. Uh, the guy that did uh, Jesus Christ. You see, I love Jesus Christ, and this is why I hate it when Jesus Christ. I know it's an old song. I don't know him, but I know right. he... I mean, I don't know him personally, but from right. you nowadays, I know him. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Papa, I listened to him. At the time, I didn't really know much about rap. Sakodia made me know that rap is about rhythm, and it's about timing, and it's about rhyming, right? And so I learned how to do that when I was in basic school, like um, JHS one i had a friend dennis dennis can come he would play beats and then have me write something and then we just goof with it right um but papa when i finished ghs and i was going to high school i used to consume a lot of papa music and then preachers i used to listen to them a lot and i realized ah so people can actually take things that are like christian and then put it into rap and then it sounds dope papa blew my mind a lot more because the guy knows how to he's the one who made me know what a punchline is I didn't like, he says something like, oh, so this is what he meant. That epiphany is like, this is so cool. I want to do this. So I went into high school, writing Papa kind of content. Yeah, first talent night, Opoku High School. After doing what I did there, some seniors came to beat me in my room. Why am I coming to tell them that they are not Christian enough, right? And that was the end of that for me. I joined a group later on, SOD, very essential in my life. And But at that time, I was just doing rap the way it was cool. So punchline rap, we're not really saying anything, but we're saying a lot of things like, you know, the way rap used to be then, like back then, like anything to wow people, but no storyline. We're just going just vibes. And that's what I did for three years in high school. Um, That was like the essential. That was like my, you know how to do this point in my life. But my my art game has taken a lot of turns as I um, developed, as I went like on. So did you have purpose to your rap? Would you say like you knew what you were doing? Or was it like a cool thing that you were doing at that time? It depends on which year. Because every year that answer changes. 
if you ask me that question in 2010 the answer is no the well the purpose was i want to know that i know how to do this if you ask me in 2013 the purpose was i want to know that i know how to do this well if you ask me in 2017 the purpose is i want to address issues i want to talk about problems i want to give meaning to this thing that i'm doing and if you ask me today the purpose is people need help i want to give help i want to help my own self because the things i say i'm corporates to them so i find that fascinating fascinating you know the part of i want to help myself because I guess as an artist myself, I write, I do some stuff too. Um, the part of reflection is a very important aspect of how I approach the art, right? If I was supposed to write something, for example, a poem, it comes from a place of deep honesty and reflective of the situation, the things I see. How do you channel the things you see and the things that you are going through into your art what is the process like do you come to a point and say like at this point in my life i feel like i'm hypocritical and so i have to address it or you just find yourself writing and you and you start writing about the things that you're already experiencing and you can't get out of it if you asked me this question maybe a year ago i won't be able to have a well-defined thought process but now i've done it over and over and i've seen that it's a cycle so here's what I do. I joined a group in 2017. It's called Sasa. And they are, it's a Christian group. But essentially, they address social issues. So a bunch of Christian artists that nev may never mention Jesus Christ. But you hear them talking about politics. hear them talking about sex. hear them talking about substance abuse. Like different social issues, right? Before they create, they have discussions. They have arguments. It's fun. You should sit in a Sasa discussion. And in those arguments, you know that when you're arguing, you sell your opinion of something. But someone is also selling their opinion and it robs off you. So you, you come to a realization of something that you hadn't thought about. So in that process, you realize what your own weaknesses are or your own biases are, right? Unless you have confirmation bias and you've decided not to change your opinion about it, when you sit down, it kind of helps with the self-reflection. Why did I think this? But the thing is actually like this. Why are we thinking differently? Maybe it's because of this. Maybe it's because of that. So later on, after the argument, you go to the person and say, oh, Charlie, it's not like this. Oh, I was actually thinking this and this and that. And they're like, no, probably this, probably that. And it helps you to self-reflect. And then after all that back and forth, you realize, oh, there may be a lot of other people that think like me too. And if I put this in art, but if I make it personal so that it's not like I'm judging anyone and they see that I also go through it, it does two things. One it gives them perspective and number two it lets them know that they are not alone in this that is just how i process and i create um that's very fascinating you know adam grant adam grant is a world renowned author and psychologist and one of his social media posts he says that you know the best arguments are the ones that people come out feeling like they've learned something new right so it's not necessarily like a dramatic shift in perspective but it's on a level, it's on a curve to learning, right? Like it's a learning curve. You know, you feel like you are gaining new substance and information that is critical to your thought process and thinking. 
And it's not much more antagonistic. Like we blame it to be like on Ghana politics or African political issues where someone is trying to rip the other person off. But it's on a curve to gradually understand and empathizing with different viewpoints and, and, and like worldviews, right? Right. And that's something that is interesting about your, your, um, your rap music. But before we go into like the rap specific, right. did you ever think that there's going to be an intercession of your career in science and research with your rap? Like, oh, it just happened by accident and it's a beautiful accident. It's a sweet mistake. It, it, it wasn't rehearsed. See, I didn't know. Yeah. Look, everything I've done, I told you. I didn't know what I was doing when I was doing them. Like, when I started doing photography, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But we created fan media out of that. When I started doing rap, I was doing it, like I told you, like, walk through the timelines. I was doing it because I can. I never really had purpose for it. So even, the, like, the rap, how it ties into mental health now, that was very recent. That's just, like, 2021. So... Even around the time that I was still talking about these social issues, I didn't even know how it was going to tie into my career. So I guess it was just a beautiful accident. Yeah, I am asking that because uh, there is now a clear sense of like the synergy, right? Like you're doing this research is all about these things, right? Social vices, um, addiction, etc. And you are now addressing it in your music, um, which is a beautiful thing, right? Like if there was an actual collaborative effort. And like I went to COP26, um, which is like the global gathering of climate leaders, and there was a session where people who are scientists, people who have science degrees, people who are working in policy, and artists come together. And they try to help the artists or the analyst to create something because the art, as I said before, is able to touch the soul of people. And if there was that continuation, like if there was that continuity between art and the science, it will actually help unveil a lot of like beautiful interconnections that can reach people more. Because, you know, even in COVID, right? Like when we're trying to reach people to wash their hands, uh, one of the most successful campaigns around the world was singing and advertisement, advertisement, right? Like they do all these, oh, do this and all that. Like, um, kind of innovative things, advertisements. I, I, I read a, an Economist article two weeks ago, and even it has affected play. And play is some kind of artistic, um, you know, participation, right? Like children have created games out of COVID, like, right? Like a game where someone touches you and you get COVID, for example, right? Like in different parts of the world. And that's very creative, right? Aha. Uh-huh. But all that is a form of art, right? And it's like, it's very important that we have the conversations where we try and see how we can bring the art because it's like, it's one of the most influential things, like the Kenya West of the world. You are more influential than the, the doctor who is trying to heal you, right? You, like Kenya West says something, you're probably going to do it more than a doctor does it, even though the doctor um, has the medical knowledge, etc. right? So that the power is existent, we just have to find a way to, um, to make it mainstream, right? Like, but we've not like you know done that yet. Yeah, I guess. Um, so there's there's a, you just took my mind to this, uh, which I should have said earlier. I think that in hindsight, now when I look at it retrospectively, I never had a career goal, but I had a life goal. 
we i found this out from a sasa argument some time ago when we when when we were arguing about whether someone has to pursue their career goals or they have to settle for what life hands at you right we we kept going on and on and on and then we realized someone said something william he said something very profound he said there's a difference between a career goal and a life goal a life goal a career goal is a subset of your life goal so if your life goal is to make people happy you can be a medical doctor and you can still be an artist like you you can an artist qualifies two of them can have that same life goal and so if you you focus on your life goal and then you work on career goals even when you don't get the career goal that you desired you can still find the next career goal that still fits into your life goal and for me my life goal is anywhere i go i want to make sure that i made a difference i want to make sure that i changed something where i went that i took them from a point a to a point b so the common denominator in all the things that i have done with my life is making a difference it's just that they all vary in their independence like career appearances yeah i think i mean i think that's quite deep but then the other part of that life goal i think that's probably the reason why you can now pick from all the different activities that you had earlier on and tie them together because i think it makes you kind of see everything through a certain lens so that is what gives you the opportunity to that somehow something everything fits magically later on but i think probably if you would have pursued something else you would have found it would have been sports instead of let's say rap you would have found a way as well to tie that into the um to the overall goal so i think and the, the general thing about uh, you could call it life goal but maybe the bigger vision the passion that all of a sudden wherever you go you see things that seem to fit and are surprisingly uh, like it seems creative it matches but when you think about it it is your unique perspective because you are perceiving it you are actually the one that can see it in that partic- particular way yeah like that makes a lot of sense you know it's like analogically it's like looking at the world through a certain mirror or lens and the mirror is a blurred mirror right it's like it has water splashed on it everything that you see through that lens is going to be blurred no matter how clear it is on the other side yeah that makes sense so let's come to rap right um kokusi is now the name i mean i guess slikehead was the evolution of the under the shoulder of your brother kind of um mirage but now you are evolving into your own man kokusi and your new ep um talks about a lot of societal issues that you're talking about but give us like an intro into the ep and why you particularly tackle those topics so first the name so the switch in the name as you have it was symbolic it symbolizes the transition in my thought and process but i am still under somebody's wing you know why kokusi is my father's name that's why it sounds so ancient so my dad and i have the same name kofi kusi and his friends call him kokusi and i feel like now that my content is a lot more mature, not to say my brother is not mature, he's going to kill me for this. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, Sly Kid was not my brother's name. He's Sly, right? So Sly Kid is the immature me, right? Um, Kokusi is the version of me that now thinks like my father, right? Now, about the project, I have suffered 
a lot of inferiority complex this minute that i still speak to you i still suffer it right and um yet again back to sasa in 2017 we had conversations um we we had a show and in preparation for the show we had conversations that made me appreciate my inferiority complex a lot more i i could kind of understand it where it comes from how it progresses the complications of it that whole spectrum we i could spend days talking about inferiority complex but we don't have that so that was my initial um exposure especially so far as these kind of topics are concerned right now i called it five foot three because i was five foot three in 2017 i'm not telling you how tall i am now don't ask me you do the math <laughs> but it's like you're probably not too far from five foot three you know, eh, but but you don't know you don't know where i am now and that brings probably me not satisfaction too because let me tell you for a fact right like for the um benefit of the audience in 2017 which is approximately five years from now five years ago like you were probably 21 20 and you don't grow so tall. you're to talk about artificial no you don't grow so tall from there like you don't grow so tall from there to be honest like the average person doesn't <laughs> but at the time my height was five foot three and uh i guess that my size from childhood was my greatest insecurity you know when you're small everyone picks on you and there are lots of right now i know more short people jokes than anyone because i've heard a lot of it pick you up put you in the dustbin like all of those things and even though you're smart and you play basketball. Nobody's talking about how someone is this short and is playing basketball. Everybody's just talking about how when you wear your jersey and you tack it in, the round parts and the armpit enters the shorts. That's what they want to talk about. And things like that scar you as a child in your formative years when you are now establishing neural connections, right? And they create a permanent indentation. So when you grow up, even when your size is not your insecurity anymore, your size has become an, like a doorway for you to be insecure about a lot of other things. So am I a good artist? Yes, but do I believe it? Probably not. Because inferiority complex has taken over the whole system like a virus and is rewiring your thought process on everything. And I thought that this is something that people need to hear about. And I still give credence to my height being my source of insecurity, even though I'm not insecure about my size right now. It opens doors for me. Now, when I say anything, people are like, oh, which small boy is saying so, like intelligent things like this? But they don't know that I'm 26 years old, right? So it's kind of cool. But it is still that thing that opened the door for all these things to follow. So I look at 5'3 figuratively, right? I play a pun on it and say, if short, is five foot three then shortcomings in your life are also five foot threes so any aspect of your life you're taller than me you may not be five foot three but if uh what can i use if greed is what you think is your problem that greed is your five foot three and so every human being will have a different five foot three or a different weakness for some people it is confidence for some people it is for some people it's being not confident for some people it is being overconfident for some people it is um I feel like I am too big. I am too fat. I use that word because I think it's an adjective. Society has made an insult out of it. But people think they are too fat and people think they are too skinny. Five foot threes. People think they are too spiritual and people think they are not spiritual enough. Five foot threes. People think they are broke. People think uh, they have too much money and people like because they have too much money, people think that they do fraud. Five foot threes. All of these things fall into that bracket. 
then I think about how do these five foot threes affect us as society? In science, uh, if you take a tissue, if you take your hand, your hand is made up of cells, right? Now, what kind of cells your hand is made up of coming together is what will make your hand the way it is. So if I have people with these particular five foot threes coming together, then they'll create societal five foot threes, societal problems. So let me give you an example. The Achimota schoolboy incident, right? You have two groups of people and we think that that incident is the problem. The problem is not the incident. The problem is not the boy. The problem is the people who have opinions about it. The yeah, so for, for, that, let me just cut you short here. Like for the listenership, the, the, we have an international listenership, you know. Oh, so, so we have to explain what we was happening. We have to explain what is happening. And I guess the backstory to that is there was a case in Ghana where a high school student, a Rastafarian high school student, was being asked by a certain high school to cut off their hair before they were admitted, right? By virtue of them having hair, which is prohibited in high schools, they couldn't be admitted. And that went to court and the student won the case against the high school and was asked to continue his education with the hair. And Sly is making a reference to that in the point that he's making that it's not as if that the school had a problem or the individuals had a problem. It's the reflection of the individual shortcomings coagulating and coming together as a societal shortcoming to evolve into a problem that exists at that kind of uh, macro state. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you got, you guys had, uh, let me say, if you had 60 seconds to state your stand on that issue, right? Um, without being, um, like, without processing it too much, Kojo, what will be your take on it? Would you have him go to school or should he cut his hair? Obviously, it would, it would help let him go to school. The, the point of going to school is to have education. The hair has nothing to do with that. To do with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, um, Daniel, what will be your take on that issue? I would describe it very similar to Isaac, maybe with stronger words, but I wouldn't mention it. Right. So because the two of you picked that side, I'm just going to play devil's advocates and pick the other side. The people on the other side are saying that rules have been set and rules have been outlined, right? And uh, the basis of those rules were that, which I think is a BS reason anyway, is that uh, those things are distractions, especially for girls. Like they're going to spend more time focusing on their hair and I'm testimony to this. When we were in high school, we were all trying to grow beard and try and look cool and stuff. And that takes time. That takes commitment. All of those things, right? If we have outlined a code of ethics and everyone should follow those like that code of ethics, I guess if you want to change this, the first step is not creating an exception. The first step is changing the rule in the book. Then scrape that rule that says that we should... uh uh not we should cut our hair before we go to school don't just sneak somebody in there when you've not changed the rule because tomorrow somebody is going to come and tell you in my religion when we wear white it means that we are mourning so i'm not going to wear white to prep the reason why you and i have different opinions on this is because of our individual five foot threes possibly my five foot three is that i'm a little too judgmental and it's making me very parochial tunnel visioned and maybe your five foot three is the fact that you're a little too liberal if you take 10 versions of you and 10 versions of me and they put us in a room, we will form that societal problem. That is just how I scaled the 5 foot 3 from being an individual thing to look at how it contributes to all the societal problems that we have. And that's why when you listen to the songs, for the ones that are argumentative, 
we don't come to a conclusion because it's not the issue it's me and you yeah uh, that's a, that's a very interesting thing that you just said right um you said something before that i thought it was very profound that the insecurity one insecurity that you have it opens the door to the others and so i find it very very weird when like the most beautiful people in the world say like i am insecure about my um my beauty you know like i said like are you ridiculous you know like you look so amazing yeah. how could you yeah. but then this is giving me a new perspective on the issue because probably their insecurity doesn't stem from their beauty itself but stem from something that enables them to look at even the most perfect part of themselves and say and allow like the light that is shining i guess the darkness that is shining through them right to see every part of themselves so insecure, and that's very profound right because i've never thought about it that way before like you allow the little amount of insecurities about something that you genuinely feel a little subpar about yourself. And then even things that you are so good at, you start questioning yourself in that area. And I think that's like an incredible realization. Let me, let me give you a mental picture of it, right? When you mix mortar, okay, and it's, it's, it's still in the slurry um, um, state and it hasn't solidified and you put a stick in it, right? You know that when you leave the stick, it's going to fall, right? In basic school, let's say you were not smart enough, like you were not getting good grades and your friends laugh at you about it. They are holding the stick in the mortar constantly because they are always hammering on how daft you are. They are holding that stick. The mortar around the stick solidifies, right? And the stick is in place. Let's say that you go to high school and you push so hard, you are able to get that stick out. So like you push hard, you improve your grade, you are no longer dumb, right? But this is the problem. What is left in the mortar? There's a hole left in the mortar and anything will fill that hole. So now when they tell you that, hey, you're not good looking, someone says it's passively, you feel insecure about it. You go and do sports, you are not so good at it. It is filling that hole. That crevice is there forever. What we are working on now is strategies to cover that hole so that not anything and everything will just slip into it. But let me ask you another question. Like your your five put the your five point like your five three is it not that is yeah your five foot three is it is it a weakness or is it a perceived weakness? Because I think you will find somebody who is the six foot seven and he might have he or she might have a very similar view on like your five foot three is like it's like i think i should have had a conversation with you guys before i did the project because this is exactly what we were talking about i have a friend called audrey she showed me this. she says that you may think that pride is a five foot three society may say that pride is a weakness it's a five foot three it's a wrong thing but you talk to some people and their pride is what is sparing them on because they are prideful they know that they have people who are looking and waiting for them to fail so that they can say, eh, look at what pride did to you. And it, it keeps them up in the middle of the night working. So who defines what a five foot three is? Now let's come back to perception. Stimulus. If I touch your hand, you no, let me not use touch. You see those pictures where you look at it the first time and it looks like two people looking at each other, but you take a second look at it and it looks like a cup in the middle. It is the same stimulus, but you perceive it differently based off of past experiences or what you are more interested in what you are inclined to see and so the same pride 
can have a different perception with different people so only me can tell you what my 543 is no one has the right no observer has the right to tell you what your 543 is but the problem with that is denial what if you are really a terrible person but you are not accepting that you being a terrible person is your 543 and that is what makes it a little weird to um, you know argue out but i guess the the surest way of defining a 543 is you the individual yourself doing a personal assessment and looking at things that you think will make you a better person if you could like step beyond it and for me that involves talking to honest people giving me an observer's perspective in as much as i do their introspection yeah it seems to me that if i look at it from a best side perspective right the role of the art is not to necessarily to solve the problem is to create the conversation that leads to the introspection so that people can leverage on that introspection to say this is my problem can you help me yes sir because me that i'm talking about all these things i told you that right now i'm sitting here looking at you but every now and then i look over my shoulder this because it's bigger it kind of folds this way and i'm wondering is it making my small like being small so obvious should i go and change my hoodie that that's what you you wouldn't notice but i'm processing this in real time right now do i have the right do i have if i had the solution would i be suffering this i don't so you're right about that i mean like that's a that's a very beautiful perspective to have on the issue so let's take the tracks one after the other right the first one is five foot three and five foot three is what is the thematic relevance of the of the of the whole project so Let's take care about like your, your thought process in going through that creation of that song. I mean, we've talked about its thematic relevance, but tell us about exactly. You know, it's, it's a tree song. Not a lot of people can maybe hear some of the words and all of that. Yeah. So, the process in that, the kind of analogies that you use, because you use a lot of metaphors and analogies in that mm. creation of it. Um, it's very practical. It's very intellectual, also, but also very introspective. Gets you asking questions what was going through your mind in that creation process okay so 53 was one of the easiest songs to write because i started in 2017 there's a 2017 version of 53 one day i'll share it i don't love it love it because it was all english and i feel like my style gets better by the day so artistically it's not really there but it had good content what i did was when i came up with that whole 53 analogy that um if you look at being 53 figuratively um then other people that are six feet and like six foot tall and all that are maybe too broke or too don't feel like they're good looking or don't think they have nice teeth can relate with when i thought of that i did two verses for that song in 2017 the first verse spoke about me my five foot threes my size being short i spoke about physical five foot threes like if you're short if you're too tall if you're too fat if you're too skinny and then in the second verse i went on to tell people having insecurities is not just about like be like it's, it's not just physical insecurities it can be mental so i took time to talk about all the different things that make us feel insecure so that people know what is wrong with them so in 2021 when i had to redo five for three first thing is i wanted to do a throwback to that so the first line you hear in five for three and physically i'm five for three short black boy that is all you see those exact same lines were on the 2017 song and that's just how i started like it's like i did a movie and then season one has ended and i'm going to season two and i want to do 
recap last previously on season one kind of that's how i started it and then i went on to talk about um in the first verse talk about my insecurities and other people's insecurities but this time i wasn't going to do physical insecurities versus all the other mental insecurities i mixed the mental and physical insecurities with the raw problems on the ground today like someone going to get married and then their their parents are like don't bring a short boy home don't bring an albino home don't bring someone with cross eyes home these are real things that are happening every day that was like what i wanted to do like bring in things that people hear and then they realize oh this is what my mother did to me or things that the parents hear and then they see that oh this is what i'm doing to my child in the second verse i'm done ranting and i'm telling you what that comment has made of me how suicidal i am because inferiority complex pushes people to suicide they perceive they like they don't feel good enough about anything they know what's wrong with them they just can't help themselves so that like they wake up one day not feeling good enough and then they want to die i want people to know that all those jokes that we used to make about height will create that hole in the mortar so that one day when i'm doing art and somebody says something that is slightly controversial about my art it makes me feel like quitting my art creating that awareness was where i was at in my mind when i wrote that song and all the way to like to the end then you have the girl in the middle doing a, a, a verse a short verse a bridge between the two verses trying to convince me that i am worth something that things are going to be better so in the second verse at the beginning you realize that we're having an argument i'm like she should give me a gun she says no i say i deserve to die she says don't She's trying to convince me that she understands. And what that does is that it lets you know that in as much as you, you suffer insecurities and you have an inferiority complex, there's always somebody there that is going to like spare you on. We've not given up on you. We are here to help you. That was just my thought process yeah. writing that song. I mean, for, from my end, I was just thinking about the, the five foot tree. So if you want to, I don't know, improve, overcome some of these five foot trees. So I, how do you see that process? Is that more of a society when what is happening around or is the issue how the person perceives or reacts towards, let's say, criticism, jokes? Like, how do you see After that? After this conversation, I'm going to request a degree in psychology. <laughs> but I'm about to explain it to you. I have weird theories that I've come up with. I'm going to use fat as an example. Look at the dictionary and look for the definition of fat. It is explained visually and that's it. They don't talk about any um, psycho implications of being called fat. It is just an adjective like short, like tall, like slim, right? Here's how fat became an insult. When you're, so there's a part, of, and I'm going to talk a little neuroscience and try and break it down for you. In your brain, there's a part called the temporal, temporal lobe, right? And... That is where your auditory um, uh, uh, signals come. So if you speak something, that's where I hear that. There's a part of your brain called the, uh, which part Kra, that's that? The Wynecki's area, the Wynecki's area. That processes words, like it, it helps you to understand, um, comprehend English or language when it is spoken to you. Put it together and say it so it makes sense. There's another area called Broca's area that helps you to be able to pronounce, right? All these senses come together and then they are integrated so that you can speak and understand or hear and then understand what is being said to you. 
Then there's a part of your brain called the amygdala. That part processes emotion. So when somebody says the word fat, you hear it and you receive the impulse through your temporal loop, right? Through all those things I mentioned earlier. Then your amygdala processes the emotion that they expressed. So when they said the word fat, if they laughed or if there was scorn or if there was some, you know, ill attitude attached to it, your brain puts all those things together. Somewhere in your thalamus, I may be wrong, but it, it, it integrates all those senses together and then has you learn that when they say the word fat, the cue, the fat becomes a cue. And then you dis- there's like discriminative stimulus. It becomes a cue for you to expect scorn or expect, expect um, um, malice when it's spoken. And that is how the word fat became an insult. So it is multifaceted. It is how people say it, how they react, becoming a definition of how you perceive it. Because you learn, you do implicit learning as time goes on. They don't teach you in class. They don't write it in a book. But from your own experiences, you encounter it. So you may think that then a way we can solve this problem is to teach the individual how to part and not establish a causal relationship between these two things. But is it easy? If it was easy, I would have done it by now. I guess one other solution we are experimenting is like cancer therapy. And I'll explain it this way. The cancer drugs on their own, they can cause cancer, right? So they get you to take it for a while, then they observe. And when when they realize that it's becoming too toxic, they adjust their dose or they wean you off the drug for some time before they put you back on it, right? External validation. It's a very toxic thing. If you have to depend on what people say about you to validate yourself, it can be very toxic because the day people don't talk, what is going to happen to your confidence? But when you are at that point where you don't feel good wearing skirts, when you don't think that skirts looks good on you, what you need at that point is external validation. You need your friend who is observing to tell you the truth as they perceive it. Yo, you don't like skirts, but I really love it. I think that you totally kill it when you wear skirts. If you hear it three times from three people that don't know each other from Adam, it becomes your definition of cool. You're like, maybe I'll try wearing skirts more often. Then it brings you to that point where you become confident in it yourself. And when you get there, that is where you have to wean yourself off external validation. Because there will be a day when nobody is going to talk about your skate. And would you stop after getting to that point? That is the therapy that we are trying. I am trying to use art to address so far. And I may be wrong. It may not work. But I think that is a way out. Yeah, like that's a very interesting approach. Like... Like, I like the analogy of, you know, trying to, you know, measure how much of, say, a drug is beginning to someone. Like, at what height should the person be taking off the drug so that they can be self-sufficient on their own? And at what point are they not self-sufficient so that they do that? It's almost like walking, right? Like a kid learning to walk. At what point do you assist the kid? And at what point do you leave the kids so that they can, you know, do their own thing? And it's like, it's a brilliant analogy. Um, let's go to the second song, which is on phones, right? Like, I use your phones. It's the title of the song is um, Phones Down. And I guess that's also kind of in the mix of addiction research. Like, there's a lot of um, research around how people are addicted to their phones. And I was watching Aziz Ansari. Aziz Ansari is a comedian. He has a Netflix um, um, special called um, uh, Comedian at Night. It just came in January. And Aziz talks about how, you know, 
there is this full um, technological solution to putting your phone down, which is um, how much hours you spend, right? So on Monday, I was coming from the gym and my, uh, my phone gave me a notification that you spent 8% less from last week, like your screen time, right? And then there is this also, oh, your screen time is off, right? And as he's like, oh, you get out of here. Like when your screen time is, like you set a, a maximum for your screen time for the day and it's ready, you're like, oh, I want to go more, you know? So it doesn't work. You probably have to um, put your phone away. And Aziz Ansari's um, solution now is that he uses like what we call a yam here. He uses a phone that is not connected. Like he doesn't use um, this technological age phone. He uses the flip phone. It has nothing but to make calls, um, to do text message, and probably a game that has snakes on it, right? Um, so it's an interesting thing that we talk about, like, the phone is a crisis. Like, we all use our phones a little too much, right? Uh, maybe Daniel doesn't. Um, I think I use my phone a little too much sometimes, to be honest. And we are all trying to get out of it. And your approach is to take it to how we are almost losing touch with our human selves and other people. Tell us more about that. So, phone down is very arguable. It's very debatable, Right? Kojo Sheldon, Kali J. Mention any other popular influences. Do you know what saved their lives? Technology saved their lives. That's how they eat. Unemployment is crazy in Ghana. Even when you are qualified, you may not get a job. Social media can save your life. Now, uh, Career Wheel, Joel Anaman. There are people that are hiring people through Twitter. Not even LinkedIn, through Twitter. Social media is solving so many problems. Look, we know about what's happening all around the world now because of what? Because of social media, right? We know about Russia. But in the, in the same vein, it is because of social media that we were struggling with. It helped with COVID campaign and then it's made us struggle with COVID campaign because every now and then you see information and you don't know what is true and what is not. And it finds you easily. Like, think about all the toxic things that you find. The best things and the toxic things both are on social media. Right. So it, it becomes very arguable and we could argue that for days would never come to a conclusion. But here's the problem. Look, I can't war with what social media does for you. But can you treat me like I'm a human being? Why is it that it has become so commonplace for us to go and sit as one place together and we're concerned about the gram? Of course, I need that picture because when you send it to me after two years, I'll say, oh, yeah, we were here. And that's cool. Right. But if we are here for five hours, why are we spending four hours and 30 minutes on our phones and we're spending 30 minutes to lift our heads to look at who cracked the word joke. It's uncool. We we find it easy, and I am a, 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 a corporate of this. It's easy for us to talk when we're texting, but when you meet the person face up, it's weird. And why? Because you've oriented communication to this guy. And because you're focused on this one, this is the only way you know how to communicate. And it is ruining a lot of relationships that we had in families. I, I, I may come to Ghana um, soon. And when I do, I'm going to have my phone. When was the last time I saw my mother? When was the last time I saw my dad? I've not seen them in a long time in person. I talked to them over the phone and that's okay. But I'll come home. My mother will be talking to me and I'll be on my phone. And I'm going to leave. And when we the next time that I'll come back to Ghana to come and have conversations with them. That is the problem 
the addiction bit of it is what they call nomophobia and they are trying to add it to the list of uh addictive uh things like cocaine addiction nicotine addiction they are trying to add phone addiction to it as well right now because it is a huge problem the craziest part of it is the depression and i have gone through this especially in recent times where i've been trying to push my project i'm spending a lot of time on social media and i say this with shame i go to my lab late and i'm not able to finish my experiments i go to class late because when i woke up in the morning i spent one hour on my phone before i went to bath that's a problem right and when those likes and things on your music are not moving like you're looking at the numbers on social media you're looking at the numbers on technology when the numbers are not moving then i begin to feel like i'm failing i begin to feel like i didn't achieve the purpose then i become depressed mobile phone killing me that's just what's informed us to like me to do that song yeah i mean i'm a I'm probably a very weird person when it comes to usage of the phone and all those things. So I find I can see that it is it's there personally. I find it hard to understand because I I have zero temptation. I have to force myself to use it purely for its practicalities. I said like Daniel, Daniel, Daniel holds a world record for not using phones. <laughs> so I'm so my question to you or what I'm thinking about is when you bring this up. Is this is this an issue of social media, or is this an issue, or is this a general issue of like a large part of society, basically? On how again, like what I'm asking is like, is social media the issue that creates it per se, or is there something underlying that is there before and it just magnet kind of magnifies it? So is that the issue? Is there an issue there? Perfect. Or Let me blow your mind. Solve the project. The songs were arranged in order and for a reason. Now imagine this. Daniel, uh, have you ever... Personal question though. Have you ever suffered a uh, an insecurity about your appearance before? A debilitating insecurity about your appearance? I mean, probably. I cannot... Re- I can't, I can't, Re- really I can't, remember. There must have been, but I mean, nothing strong, I would say. I would Good. Say. If, it was, if it was strong, you would remember. For somebody who has suffered that and seeing the value of external validation they look at how you know social social media amplifies right so it, whatever you get from your friends around you it, you can have some an amplified version of it on social media right so if i feel insecure about my appearance what do i do let's go pick my phone let's take a selfie let's go what do we do next post it on social media what do we want Two thousand likes oh god i look so good because two thousand people validated me for what i look like that is how inferiority complex feeds into narcissism that was the central that's the reason why the songs follow in that order so i tell you how insecure i am i go on to tell you how i am seeking external validation here but i will argue with anybody and tell anybody that i am confident on my own and not accept it but i'm dealing with it and this is very personal like i'm sharing personal experiences with you so i become hooked on this let's say i'm insecure not only about my looks but also about my craft as an artist i'm constantly looking for people that tell me hey this boy they rap that's what i want to see every day and where will i see it the one my roommate he has told me severally i'm tired of hearing this from him i want to hear it from new people every day i want to hear it from two thousand people i want an influencer to post it so that more people listen 
and even if they don't listen because the influencer posted it they'll say oh yeah we agree yeah this guy is good that is what i want to see and that is why i wake up every day and this is the first thing i pick my phone that's the addiction yeah i mean once you put it in those your words i can now for me it's now far clearer to see why somebody would have that kind of trigger but i still think there is something it's like when i put something out personally any like beat work my opinion everything i'm really eager to hear the negatives i i, I kind of i almost don't care about positives because i'm like yeah i kind of a lot of time you kind of know the positives like you know maybe huh this aspect i'm quite good at it so you telling me is like yeah yeah it's okay it's okay and then it's like someone else is telling me this is negative or this is not good it's like that is so even with social media if anything i would rather be kind of eager to figure out the the negative aspects because it's where i think i can improve of course maybe as you're saying if you have a 53 it might it's a perceived one so of course in that case if negative things come it's not something that you can just work on or improve it's 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 a little bit different but i'm still i'm just wondering it still goes back to the same and i can now understand why it would cause that kind of reaction and trigger but what what would you say how do you go about it to maybe deal with it or work on it so what i do now is um i know that currently my music depends on social media largely right so I talked to her and it's not good for me because it's making me mess up in school and I don't want to drop grade and it looks like, hey, this is the guy that did a PhD and went to do music and uh, he was a bust, right? So I spoke to a few friends who have been with me like since who have a little extra time and are ready to help to log into my socials and um, respond to things, tweet at things, push things when they have to go. And then I delete the apps from my phone and I tried screen time didn't work for me putting a password on things didn't work for me so i just um delete it and then i constantly remind myself of why i am here and how there's time for what i draw a shadow it's weird and i'm not doing well so far like i'm at like 40 percent success rate so far it's, it's it's hard it's a demon it's very difficult to do also with people running my accounts i love to give i i'm, I'm not i'm not trying to be an artist i'm just trying to be a guy that is changing things right so i value i don't want to treat people like some celebrity and you were a fan i don't want fans i want friends i want people that i can talk to about these problems right i want a circle and the only way you can do that is if you have personal conversations with them so if you text me i want to have a personal conversation with you if you tell me i like your project i want to know what was your favorite song on the project let's talk about it but then i'll be on my phone for so long and that's just a trade-off that's just like how hard it is now but I'm prioritizing school and um, even as I push this project, so I'm still deleting the apps. Hopefully, I, I find a way to delete it from my head too. Right now, that's the biggest challenge. I can't uninstall from here. Okay, um, so let's talk about Dream Olympics now, um, which is a song that basically goes into the unfortunate battle that we have i think something that we've actually talked about on the call the unfortunate battle of 
trying to figure out what our life's purpose is and what dreams are valid or invalid. If you can take us through that song. So that song, eh? That song came from the conversation I told you about. That argument about whether to pursue your career goal or um, um, do whatever life hands to you. That's where it came from. After that argument, I got the perspective. Usually that's what I do. I just take two perspectives and then I talk about it. And I figured there'll be people on either side arguing either things. Um, the one who says that uh, they will pursue their dreams to the end. His five foot three may be the fact that he's not re- realistic enough. The one who also wants to pursue whatever life throws at him, it's possible that his five foot three is that uh, he he's not strong willed and will just settle for whatever. He doesn't have direction in life. So that song addresses two different like five foot threes, and they argue themselves out because we all have to make that decision. Prior to that song's release, I had done some freestyle that went viral. Uh, the secondhand dreams. Uh, Papa friend of Prof Jack. The one about uh, whether people, how parents have pushed their dreams onto us and are forcing us to pursue it. But that thing was just a one-sided opinion. So my friend, Victor Morgan, wanted to give kind of banter that opinion with his own opinion about how it's not like he doesn't have his own dreams. But if he wants to be a lawyer today, he has to write the, the exam, the qualifying exam to go into law school. And he's not in control of putting himself in the school or not considering the proportion of people that they are admitting you can make eight a's and go for medical school interview and still be counted out even when you deserve to be there right you can do engineering finish school and not have a job so it's hard to say that i want to be this and this is exactly what i'm going to do imagine wanting to be a pilot in ghana and your parents don't really have money how is that even happening it's not an impossibility but i guess whichever side you choose to pick you have to be ready for the repercussions and know like what it is going to take that's what we wanted the song to mirror so if you listen to it you realize that we didn't come to a conclusion he just told me at the end if i talk and you won't listen to my opinion well do what you want to do there are no opinions there are no we can't give any advice to anybody whether to choose my opinion or to choose victor morgan's opinion you just have to know what the two opinions are and what the repercussions of choosing each one are that's where we were on like what we were on on that song so i think it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier on that i guess having a bigger life goal or vision is much more important than having a career because yeah, yeah because what then this would mean is for example you don't necessarily get an opportunity to become a pilot but if becoming a pilot is only a subset of a bigger life goal or vision right then it means that you have opportunity to do other things that will lead you to the same destination perhaps not being a pilot necessarily right and i think that's something that i want people to take out of the podcast you know the older people i don't know like life has different trajectory but if you're a young person who has time you don't have to be tied to a certain career if only you have a grand vision of your life a bigger life goal there are so many ways where you could achieve it so there is nothing as failure especially when it is related to just one field right there's always a way to find and leverage other opportunities to get you to that destination because if you just want to make sure that 
you are making people happy or you are teaching people the knowledge that you find, becoming um, a PhD degree holder and lecturing in university surely is not the, the only way to do that. And surely it's not even the way to make sure that you are um, maximizing your impact, right? So, so that becoming a doctor doesn't necessarily mean that you failed, right? Um, which is like the normalcy here in Africa that you are going towards, you are gunning towards one particular career perspective and because you didn't reach the height, you are kind of failing and all the other things are secondhand dreams and they are not first priority. Hmm. I mean, personally, I completely agree with what you are saying, but just as you spoke, I was just trying to look at it from another angle and I would like to throw this into the round in terms of, um, I mean, I talk about the hack having a bigger vision instead of the career and following that. But then, again, that might also be uh, something that we are privileged to even be able to pursue to an extent from multiple aspects from t in terms of having a certain level of education or even having a certain level of intel intelligence or being at, yeah, just having a certain path versus I guess there is probably always a portion or a good portion of people that probably um, cannot just easily pursue these overarching life goals and switch careers and all these kind of things. Um, so because I'm saying that because I catch myself telling this a lot to people, but then later when I walk away, sometimes depending on who I talk to, I then kind of feel like, yeah, maybe it might not be it might not be a far, fair assessment or viewpoint considering where that person is coming from or where that person stands. Um, I'd like to push back on that, Daniel. Um, like the basic needs of life, those are given. You need to have the basic needs of life. You need to have food, water, a place to live, etc. right? I mean, according to Maslow, you have to have that before you can look at other um, aspirations of life, even not looking necessarily at the masculine um, worldview or like kind of point of reference, those things are given. When you wake up every morning and you have a place to live, you have food to eat, you have the conscience to think about other things. And so being away from surviving and actually having an opportunity to thrive would give you the opportunity to look beyond the circumstances of environment and trying to find solutions like that we are, that we are talking about. So definitely people need to have the basic needs of life fixed. But I guess no matter what, right, having an opportunity to build a vision for your life is not something that is relegated for only the privilege. Um, I like to say I'm not privileged, but at this point I'm not, uh, uh, in my life, the, all the things that have led me here, I would have to accept that I have a certain kind of life that a lot of people don't have. And that is the fact. So I am privileged. However, you don't need privilege, right, to come to a point where you could see a certain future for your life. I don't think you do need privilege. I think it's perspective, but that it's a little more difficult to do that when you're in a certain kind of environment, but you don't need privilege to do that. And so 
you could have change, right? You could, you could do change in your own small way and still fulfill a certain life goal. It's not going to have Elon Max level of global relevance, but at the subset of the environment in which you live, it's going to be important. And that's what I want people to understand when we talk about impact, right? I am that kind of person. And I, again, I am a very greedy person in my own way, my own five foot three. And the benefit of that greediness is that it makes me aspire for more and makes me multiply my impact where it's possible. But to be honest, maybe sometimes I should just um, be grateful and just like maybe throw the ball down and say like, yeah, this is good enough, you know, but in my own greedy way, I don't. However, there is still a lot of progress that you can identify with and become satisfied with in the small things that you do, right? That you touch one person's life. And the beauty of life is that you don't know how the ring of life is able to um, inspire others, right? So it's just one person that you touch, but that one person that you touch turns out to become the next Einstein. And if you didn't touch them, then Einstein wouldn't exist. And then we'll have the law of relativity and then physics wouldn't have progressed as it is. And then, you know, and then, and then, and then. So it's not about the numbers as much as the numbers are important, right? So you can live in that kind of circumstance. Let me give you a typical example. I rewatch Harriet. Harriet is the story of Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was in a place where, I mean, she didn't have an opportunity to dream of any better life. I mean, he was like, she was like put in a slave, um, 17th century world where she was a woman, even made it worse. But there were men. She was born into a place where she was supposed to be free, but she wasn't free. But she didn't allow that to, um, limit his environment. This is not me trying to sound inspirational this is me trying to say that if you give yourself a chance you are able to see beyond your reality but it is much more difficult when you're in a certain kind of circumstance i agree but privilege necessarily doesn't allow you to have vision there are a lot of people who are in privilege but are visionless yeah there are a lot of people who are in privilege but are visionless the only thing is that you're going to struggle a lot more if you are in those circumstances but you have to take um, you have to take the effort that you are making, even if it were one person or one thing, as some kind of progress that you would be prideful in. Yeah, sorry. Just like, ironically, I think I agree 100% with everything you said. I'm just trying to pull myself, I was just trying to pull myself back of not falling into, I don't know if I should call it blindsidedness or arrogance, but in like to assume that yes it truly is like everybody can go beyond that reality and i mean i don't want to stay on this too long because but uh i think me and isaac i think when we first met we had that or maybe the second time we spoke about the pursuit of happiness and how many people see that as the objective or goal and i think it kind of falls into that in the sense of maybe Maybe for some, maybe some people truly can just have a, another path, despite me not believing it. So I just brought it up. That's kind of what I think we should go back on track of the discussion. 
Have you, you so yeah. you guys you guys sound like you've had a discussion on this before, right? Yeah, I mean, generally, if I can, I have discussions with people about everything. And Daniel is just one of those people where we can just have like four hour conversation about almost nothing. So that's <laughs> right, right. You you know why you're gonna keep going back and forth? It's your individual five fifties, and that's the relevance of this project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is something funny, but in, in the comment section of um, the on a Twitter thread, right? So someone shared Kokusi's music. A social media influencer shared Kokusi's music, and someone in the thread said, "How can you be a rapper and expect to go go global and be called Kokusi?" And, yeah, I like that guy. And a lot of people. <laughs> And a lot of people said, oh, you know, this is funny because he has a song about yeah, that. Yeah, this song, this song is for you. He has, think, he has a song about, song about that. I don't think he opened, I don't think he's opened it. I think Pride is going to not make him open it. But um, if he has, maybe he would understand why they were asking him to listen to stereotypes. But yeah, I like people like that. I love competition. I love, I feel like he was just trying to be funny, you know, like, an influencer has posted and he wants to like you know like just say something that is a little controversial generate some attention you know and you you need to sit down for one second and then be empathic that's that's the main problem i have with my people my people just like they just came for the guy yo like crazy i'm like when i saw it the first thing i saw was someone looking for attention that's the first thing I saw. Someone trying to be funny. It's possible that genuinely he is funny, but no one has, you know, he doesn't have the following. He doesn't have, he hasn't made it apparent yet how funny he can be. And this may be his big break, you know, like seizing every opportunity, but no one is looking there. I- I'm not validating what he did, but because it is me and I can handle it. That's the first thing I saw. It was, I was very empathic about, um, what he did and i followed him on, on social media i sent him a text i'm trying to make him my friend now yeah but what i found fascinating is that there was a song about that and people were like you know what you should go and listen to this song you know because the judgment that you are passing is exactly what the guy is trying to talk about <laughs> and and we find ourselves passing judgments every time like um one of the mental exercises that i have come to learn and do is that i I'm a very judgmental person. I, I won't lie. And a lot of people would not be honest about it, but I am honest about it because passing judgment is not necessarily the wrong thing. It allows you to evaluate every single situation and come up with what you think hierarchically is better. But I find myself not... Um, because I want to check that, I find myself not necessarily wanting to go on the path of judgment all the time but questioning the relevance of each judgment and each decision in a more argumentative way like the songs do right so that i'm not kept in the loop of i'm passing a judgment but i'm in the mook uh, i'm in the i'm in the loop of i'm trying to make a dedicated um logical more intellectual decision right so that I don't just say, oh, this person, he wears a short skirt. So he is, yeah. she is um, a slut, right? But yeah. I'm able to, as you said, be more empathic and um, um, empathetic about it. But that is something that we all go through and we have to check it. Last thing, 
that we talk about the stereotypes because we are talking about now, right? There's a song called Stereotypes on that. Uh, and that is something that we all go through. I mean, we are stereotyped in every single way. And I think as you're saying, maybe it stems from our individual five four streets, like our perspective of the world, where we come from, where we are. But it's a big problem. Um, as someone, I speak about mental health and how I'm passionate about it a lot. But one of the most pervasive things about mental health is that when you start talking about it, that you start talking about weaknesses, people start to tag you, right? And it's like the thing, like people, you become the thing instead of the thing just becoming a part, not really a part of you, but it's, it's an extension of the things that you go through as a human being and as part of the human experience, you become that thing. You become the guy who is sick or mad or you are the guy who is um, always complaining about A, B, and C. But to be more solutions-oriented, how do we go around becoming less stereotypical people in society? Even though it's a part of the human being, like, constructively. So, I think that the way out is to sit in the argument, but this time with an open mind. The argument will not stop. I love the, com- I love the argument. So I learned this from Joyner Lucas, right? He's a rapper. If you listen to my content, you realize that there's a lot of Joyner Lucas in there. He does songs where he argues with himself on them. He says one thing, then the next verse, he says another thing. He spins it off like that. He had a song called I'm Not Racist. Kojo, that was the first time in my life I had given thought to why someone will be racist. First time in my life. I thought being racist was barbaric. Like, why would you hate somebody because of melanin? right or why would you hate somebody because they're more pale than you are because you have more melanin because apparently racism goes both ways right but he talks about how if you were born imagine being born a child to white parents okay and on tv when you watch tv every time they catch a criminal at least the one they show the one they show on tv is the black guy going in there right or if you look at crime a, a crime series or something for every 10 crimes, eight of them are black people. Whether it is apparent that that, that is what they are showing us or that is, that is what it is, that is what you, you have, you've, been, you've been exposed to right from jump, right from childhood. You grow. Remember what we said about establishing connections between being the word fat and the emotion that is attached to it? That's the same way you begin to establish relationships between the word black and the things that you see on TV. Now, it is not right, and at that point in your life, you need help and you need guidance. But assuming you didn't have that guidance in your life, and you grow up with that stereotype, so that when you see somebody in the middle of the night, and the person looks like, look at my face, and then I'm like this, and I'm strapped on, just because I'm cold, not because I'm a criminal, right? But it is 11 in the p.m., and it's dark, (laughs) and you're the only one walking the street, bro, won't you run? After seeing that thing on TV, won't you run? right it may be wrong but is it his fault that he thinks that way we are not supposed to be angry about it we're supposed to be supportive about it help him out of that circumstance i pity him if he doesn't know that he needs help right but i don't blame him for feeling that way and how did i come up with this join a lucas song arguing both sides showing me what the white man had to go through is how i had this whole reorientation of my mindset So I think that the way out of stereotype 
whether we we I, I don't think that we fully need to do without it because it is very present preventive god puts a part of like gave us a part of our brain that judges for a reason that profiles for a reason and we're supposed to use it to keep ourselves from danger or to put ourselves in a better position if you're going for a job interview you have to read body language isn't that judging the the panel you're judging the panel as much as they are judging you so it's not the wrong thing but the application of it is where the problem is do it here and then ask yourself try and argue with yourself in your head before it comes out of your mouth that is a way that i think that we can get out of this and that's why i want five foot three to have people talking i want people to argue because the more they argue the more they learn true but another question the example you made with the with the guy with the hoodie who could be cold i mean i have heard i had a discussion basically with a white friend very similar and he, the, guy, the guy tells me, I'm even about to meet him after this interview, interestingly. He, he tells me that, at some point, he tells me that, yeah, it's bad, but sometimes he he thinks he has race, he's a racist. or And then he gives me the example of how he gets scared, like, saw a black guy entering the bus, like, 11 p.m., and he has that feeling. But my question is, is that really, is, does it matter whether he's white or he's black? Is it not that, I mean... No, it, it it doesn't uh-huh. matter because me, me, I'm black. But when I step outside and it's late and I'm coming, I want a police to escort me to my house. I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared. But that criminal, yeah, the criminal, I'm not only scared of a black person. That is the stereotype. I am also scared of a white person at that same time who is dressed the same way. Because I met, recently I was coming from class and then there was like a car that was... um behind me and it was moving slowly behind me bro that was creepy and it had never happened to me before and then they parked like they crossed me eventually and then parked which means that i was going to walk towards them i was very paranoid so i crossed to the other side of the road right when i got close to them they got down from the car picture this this is how i was processing it they got down from the car and they were walking in my direction. I kept looking over my shoulder. Yo, I was confused. And there were three of them. And there was one of them still in the car running the engine. Like, am I going to be kidnapped? Am I going to be like, all the movies I've watched on, like, how white people treat black people became real. So I think, I, like, I turned around. I asked them, all good? Like, is everything okay? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is fine. It's just, and one of them shouted. And the other friend was like, oh, oh, yeah, they honked at me. That was, like, what scared me the first time. I wasn't in their lane and then they honked, Right? And the guy was like, oh, like, ignore my friend. He, like, he messes around sometimes. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're okay. I'm good. And then I moved ahead. That kind of gave me some assurance. And then he went another way. So I, I calmed down. But those were white people. If they were black people, I wouldn't be as apprehensive. You know why? The stereotype that has been created is that the white person is out here to get the black person. And that's why I was scared of the white man. If he was also white... And the people that pulled that stance were black. He will feel the same way. I guess it's a thing about the difference in the color. More of that. It's not about the white man. It's not about the black man. It's about any time where the color is different. We trust less. So I am seeing two things here, right? The first thing is that I'm seeing a hierarchy in the in the in the in the stereotypes and how we rank them, because it seems that from the discussion we have. The representation of the man in the hoodie is a more fearful, gen- I mean, a general fearful characteristic than whether it is a black man or a white man in the in the hoodie. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're right about so that. So the man in the hoodie is at the top 
right? And it doesn't matter whether he's a white or a black person, right? But below that is whether it is who is seeing the person. So if the white man seeing the black man in the hoodie becomes a higher version of it. But if it is the white man seeing the white man in the hoodie, it's an okay. Then but it's then, a smaller exactly, version. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm seeing like a kind of a hierarchy in, in, in that. But then the second thing I'm also seeing is that representation matters. That the dominant representation of the realities or perceived realities we see through media and in our environment grows to become what is the dominant truism that leads to a, per, a stereotype, right? Yes. So it is not necessarily true that the black man in the hoodie is dangerous or even the man in the hoodie is dangerous, but the man in the hoodie has characteristically been dangerous. So we expect the man in the hoodie to be dangerous. So representation matters. So we should do very well to create representations that do not negatively create a false perception of about the, about, the, about the whole view, right? So this week I saw a social media post where if you search now, even children in Africa, you're going to see horrible pictures of people who are, and you see, I'm going to do this and everybody in the podcast should probably beat me for this. But when I, the word I was going to say is I was going to say kids in Somalia. And that is a, a stereotype because I've always seen kids in Somalia in that way. But the fact is kids in Somalia don't look like that. But even now, I was going to do that because it's representation, right? So right, we should right. do... You just caught yourself on Exactly, it, right? I caught myself, right? And I'm being honest. I'm being honest to saying that because that's the reality of the representation that has been created. So you don't blame the, 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 the European for thinking that kids in Africa look like that because that's what he sees, right? And that's unfortunate. So we should just create better representations of, of, of the environment that we see of ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes I don't know whether the education is too much. So I have to take this class. It's called Diversity, um, Equity, and Inclusion. And they address these issues like race, um, uh, sexism, you know, all those things, right? And uh, we go for this class where they're they're talking about, um, they're talking about like this um, whole race thing, right? And uh, how it is wrong. And also they take me into racism. So they talk about microaggression, right? How when somebody says, oh, you say oh, you're Ghanaian? Wow, you speak good English. And it, look, it sounds like a compliment, but the, the substance in it is for a Ghanaian. That's the four. They keep the four in brackets. So it's like a Ghanaian, you speak good English. But it's like for a Ghanaian, you speak good English. And people take offense, right? I'm like, if nobody taught me about microaggression, I'll just let the person go away with this comment. Nothing changes. Why do you want me to be... Well, that education is supposed to be for the microaggressor. But for me, you make me become more aware of these things. And even when the person means no harm, you make me look at all the harm and what they just said. But it could have been harmless. So I don't know whether educating about it is a good thing or is a bad thing. Charlie, I don't I don't know. Yeah. I mean, this is a very... It's a very interesting one, uh, what you just mentioned about that episode. But... I mean, there's also a part that comes, is created, or a good part is created by Ghanaians. Despite, of course, even me, it's like, immediately as you said, I had that feeling, well, because I've experienced that before, not towards me. I heard maybe somebody saying that to someone, to another, to somebody, but it's like, yeah, for a Ghanaian with the English, and it's like, it cringes me. 
But then um, I've probably shared that story with Isaac once before. But when I went to university in Ghana, one of my we had a class on organizational behavior, and for whatever reason, the lecturer asked, "What is a VIP or a VVIP?" And I was just quiet, and then he went round, and they made the descriptions. And after a while of listening, I was I wasn't happy about it. And then I made my comment, and basically what it was is I felt that that description of a VIP could not be a Ghanaian. But this was created by Ghanaian students. So the, the, like, so the kind of attributes and what they assigned to a VVIP in a general context was basically, it's like, it's not a Ghanaian. And I told them that basically from what they described, since I'm half, I kind of feel I'm the only one who has kind of a chance to be that VVIP. And... Yes, and their response to me was like, yes, but isn't, is that not the truth? And I was so shocked. But anyway, it's a learning curve. <laughs> it's a learning curve. Jeez, uh, I mean, this has been a beautiful conversation. I think that it's a learning curve is a great place to end it. Um, Sly, what are your last words? I don't know. <laughs> I want to say... Um... To anyone who's listening to this podcast right now, I mean, besides the fact that I need you to go and listen to Five for Three, and if you're not Ghanaian, I will work a translation for you soon on Music's Match. Give me some time. Um, I want you to know that it is okay to be weak. It is okay to be broken. It is okay to have problems and own it. If you accept it, you have an attempt or you have a chance of correcting it. You have a chance of getting better. And you should share it because you find strength in numbers. You'd be surprised at the number of people who feel the very same way and are going to be inspired by your story. Yeah, that is that is profound. Um, I don't know if, Daniel, you have anything to say. I think that was perfect to end it, but I'm, I will look for my five foot trees. I will look out for them. <laughs> you should. Yeah, we should all look for our five foot trees. This has been the Change Africa podcast with Kusi Obuadim. And he is Cool Kusi the rapper, Cool Kusi the scientist, Cool Kusi the pharmacist, Cool Kusi the photographer. I know him as like Kid, the basketball player. He's a multifaceted personality. <laughs> And he's made this podcast very great. I mean, this podcast is all about trying to introspect and speak to some of the African problems. And today we've taken the perspective of speaking about societal vices, stereotypes, phones, addictions, a lot of things, you know. This has been the Change Africa podcast. My name is Isaac Kujodenuabo and I've been here with Daniel Kukumeki. See us again next time. Catch us everywhere you listen to your podcast. Bye. Thank you.